Now, I want to jump in here. I didn't mean to besmirch you by saying paranormal and esoteric. You well, know, you that... those words have no meaning. We're dealing with hard physical evidence, hard physical reality. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is July 8th, 2008. We are way off schedule, two days behind where we normally are. I want to apologize to everybody for that. My 4th of July weekend was a little perfunct and therefore threw everything off quite a bit. But we're back on pace now, and I expect we'll have the season finale next week, maybe around this time or Monday. Before we dive into this week's preview, I cannot hold in the news any longer. Next week on the program, it is, of course, the season finale of BOA Audio Season 3. And as we like to do here at BOA Audio, when we close out the season, we want to bring in a white-hot supernova of a guest, an, an ultra superstar, a legend, a Hall of Famer, an icon. This year, we're going to go even bigger, even more iconic, and even more ultra rare interview-wise. I'm happy to report that our season finale guest will be none other than the incomparable and legendary Jacques Vallée. I sat down with Jacques back on July 1st for a two-hour interview covering tons of stuff. I'm going to talk more about it at the end of the program, but as I said, I could not contain my excitement. Now, it's time to preview this week's program, and as we teased on the webpage, it is an interview that has to be heard to be believed. Our guest, of course, is A-list superstar name in the world of esoterica, Linda Moulton Howe. As I said last week, an absolute barn burner of an episode with somebody that I've wanted to get on the program for a very long time and someone who provided a truly unique interview for the program, as you'll hear when you listen to the rest of the show. LMH is going to detail her entrance and evolution into the world of high strangeness. We're going to get a very in-depth recounting of her infamous meeting with Richard Doty in 1983. We're going to find out whether she regrets entering the Earth Mysteries field, why she keeps researching high strangeness, her perspective on being a prominent woman in the world of ufology, where she sees the field going in the future, and much, much more. A truly captivating episode of BOA Audio, with one of the biggest names in the paranormal field over the last 30 years, Linda Moulton Howe. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Linda Moulton Howe, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Linda Moulton Howe is a graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree in communication. She has devoted her documentary film, television, radio, writing, and reporting career to productions concerning science, medicine, and the environment. Ms. Howe has received local, national, and international awards, including three regional Emmys, a national Emmy nomination, and a station Peabody Award for medical programming. 
In addition to television, Linda produces, reports, and edits the award-winning science, environment, and earth mysteries news website, earthfiles.com. In 2004, Linda was the on-camera TV reporter for the History Channel's documentary investigation of an unusual August 04 cow death in Farnham, Nebraska. She's also traveled to Florence and San Marino, Italy to speak about her Earth Mysteries investigations, and she has produced and reported Earth Files segments for Comcast cable broadcasts in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Linda's documentaries have included A Strange Harvest and Strange Harvests 1993, which explored the worldwide animal mutilation mystery. Her website is, of course, www.earthfiles.com. Pretty simple, earthfiles.com, all one word. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 17, 2008. Linda Moulton Howe, talking about her career, researching and reporting on the world of high strangeness, on BOA Audio, Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Ben All of America Audio. When I started this program three years ago, this week's guest was at the top of the list. It's someone who I've wanted to have on the show for so long. Uh, we're, we're getting close to 100 episodes here, and finally, we've brought her on the show. I'm really excited to speak with her. Uh, she's a mainstay in the world of esoterica today. She's an A-list. She's the number one woman in the field of the paranormal. There's no doubt about that. She's behind the outstanding website, earthfiles.com. She's a regular on Coast to Coast AM, and I'm just, just thrilled to have her on the show. Linda Moulton Howe, welcome to Banal of America Audio. It's an honor to have you on the program. Well, thank you. Uh, and I take exception with the word paranormal and esoterica. Uh, I have a career in uh, television and in writing that has been strictly environment, science, and medicine. That Those are my beats. And that is how I came to investigate the worldwide mystery of animal mutilations because it's hard physical evidence of a phenomenon in the environment has nothing to do with the words paranormal or esoterica. And to stress that, if you go back to where I began my TV career, I uh, was at Stanford University in California for two years working on my master's degree in communication where I made films with the Stanford Linear Accelerator in the Stanford Medical Center for two years and left there to do news in the beats of science, environment, and medicine for KNBC in Los Angeles. And then I was hired to uh, work in the documentary department and then uh, was asked to do uh, and produce a show called Inquiry, again focused around science, environment, and medicine. And from there, I ended up uh, being hired by Boston's ABC station, WCVB, where I uh, did all of the Timothy Johnson ABC medical editor uh, productions for him. So I was essentially doing all medical programming until he asked me to also include science. And I was married at the time, and my husband took a position that was in Denver, Colorado, and that's how I came to be hired at the CBS station in Denver to be director of special projects there. And my assignment by the station was to produce live studio programs, documentaries, and news segments 
about science, environment, and medicine. And that's what I was doing when in the summer of 1979, one of my audio guys on a project that I was doing had come off a shoot for 2020, which was a new program uh, for ABC Network in New York. And he said, you know, Linda, we have been uh, on the trail for six months of the strangest story. All of these cattle and horses and, and other farm animals are found dead with these strange excisions. There's no blood. There are no tracks. And we couldn't keep our batteries going on the chute. And as a longtime producer in documentaries in which the battery belts back then were what you lived on day to day, and to hear uh, this professional sound man say that he couldn't keep the battery belts going really got my attention. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we would plug in our battery belts all night. We'd have eight or nine or ten. We'd go out on a shoot into one of these fields where there were one of these dead animals, and we, all, we'd lose all of the power in all of our belts. So I said, well, when is this program supposed to air? And he said, I don't know, but it's 2020 in New York. So I called and talked with the executive producer, said I was director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver, and my audio guy was telling me about this shoot, and I wanted to know when the program would be on. And it may have been Rune Arledge then, and he said, oh, no, we scrapped that program. We're in the business of news, and we could never get a hard answer, so we're not going to do it. I said, well, what about the footage? The audio guy said you shot over 100,000 feet. And back then it was double system. That's when you ran 16 through a camera and you had a Nagra going with quarter inch that had to be transferred to full coat. Then you had to sync up the film and the full coat. It was a big deal and it was hugely expensive uh, to run more than 100,000 feet of film on anything. And he said, yeah, that's right, but we, we're scrubbing it. We're not going to do anything with the footage. And that was my decision then, <laughs> that any New York company that would shoot over 100,000 feet of film on a mystery in which they could not keep battery belts going, I was going to take a look at it myself. And that is how I came to produce the film known as A Strange Harvest. Mm -hmm. took me nine months of 18 hours a day, wow. seven days a week, for nine months. I never worked on anything so hard in my life so consistently. And when A Strange Harvest was first broadcast on the CBS station in Denver, it got a 19 rating and a 37 share, which has never been exceeded by any locally produced program. And it was as if a bomb went off. Um, I knew that I was in an extraordinary story because at the beginning, when I was doing research with sheriff's offices, looking at photographs and looking at documents and having sheriffs say to me, listen, I'm not going to stand up in front of your camera but I'll tell you right now, Linda, we're not dealing with predators, we're not dealing with disease, we're not dealing with satanic cults, we're dealing with creatures from outer space. Wow. I started hearing that from law enforcement at the very beginning of what is called the research to develop what you're going to do in a, in a project for television. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I was uh, walking through some kind of Alice in Wonderland mirror that 
uh, until then, I had never been exposed to the concept of some intelligence from outer space interacting with this planet, let alone killing and mutilating animals by the thousands in both the northern and the southern hemisphere, which I began to realize was happening, that it wasn't confined to Colorado and the western part of the United States. It had occurred in every single state in the United States, every province in Canada, Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and on and on. Mm -hmm. So I knew that it was a huge story, and when A Strange Harvest was first broadcast, making uh, the, the strong link to some sort of an extraterrestrial presence through the few law enforcement who would say this on the record, which I finally did get, um, that what happened is that it got this gigantic rating and the mail started coming in huge bags, the switchboard couldn't keep up with all of the phone calls, and everybody that was communicating with me was saying the same thing. You know, I've never told anyone that this before. And then it was, there were beams of light that came down in a pasture, and I saw one of my animals rising in a beam of light. Uh, all kinds of mutilation stories, all kinds of encounter stories. And I knew that this was so much bigger than the two-hour special that I had produced for the CBS station that I wanted to keep working on this uh, <laughs> until I got the government to own up to the fact that they knew that extraterrestrials were mutilating animals on the planet. And then was my first run-in in a career in which I had always been winning journalism awards. Uh, my projects, whether they were in KNBC or ABC or Denver, were always uh, getting a lot of audiences for the work I was doing. Now it was the largest audience the station had ever had, but the general manager came and had a meeting with me, and he said, Linda, I know you want to keep investigating this story on animal mutilations, but I'm telling you, you can't. We can't at the station put any more money into investigating this phenomenon, so I want you to move on to other subjects. And that was the first time in my professional life that I had ever had anybody standing in front of me saying, you can't investigate what you think is the most important news. Yeah. And about that same time, I got a contact from home box office, and they wanted to see my documentary, A Strange Harvest. And the director of documentaries then was a woman named Jean Abinader. And she sent back a letter saying we would very much like to hire you to do an hour special for Home Box Office following Beyond a Strange Harvest, which they had screened and liked. And uh, we'd like to fly you back to New York and do a, con a contract with you. And I went through one of those uh, dilemmas where I was married, a husband and a child, and a very uh, active life in Denver, but... I had run into the wall at the uh, CBS station, mm -hmm. and so suddenly it was as if the universe was saying, well, if you go in this direction with home box office, you can do what you want to keep doing. So I uh, talked about this with my family, and my husband encouraged me to, to uh, continue going where the story was leading. And so I signed a contract with Home Box Office on March 21st, 1983 in New York and headed out away from the CBS station where I had been for, I think, seven or eight years by then. 
and ran uh, head-on into the United States government. And that is what I detail in my first book that came out in 1989 called An Alien Harvest. And in that, I go into great detail about how uh, I started on the home box office project ended up at Kirtland Air Force Base in the uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations with a special agent there named Richard Doty, who I thought I was there to get some names of some ranchers in South Dakota who had allegedly seen a disc land on U.S. Air Force land at Ellsworth Air Force Base and that there was some sort of a fighting military exchange between a security guard and the disc in which a beam of light, like a laser, came out of the disc and melted the gun in the hand of the security guard, and that there were animal mutilations there and and a whole lot of things. And so I was going to try to flesh out that story in conjunction with uh, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy in New York, because Peter Gersten was basically interfacing between cause and the FOIA. Uh, he was had been the first attorney in the United States to file to all of the alphabet soup agencies uh, requesting information about the UFO phenomenon and was doing this as a very skilled lawyer on behalf of Citizens Against UFO Secrecy. And it was his first filings that ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, and I believe it was in 1980, that there was a release of some of the information about his FOIA uh, his filing FOIA against all the alphabet soups and the fact that in an in-camera, off-the-record, uh, very private exchange between CIA, NSA, DIA, NRO, and all of the uh, attorneys representing those uh, classified agencies, that they released, I think it was like a total of 256 documents in those agencies concerning UFOs, of which the vast majority of everything was completely, solidly blacked out. These are the famous pages that Stanton Friedman has held up, saying this is the government's comment on UFOs that are not supposed to exist, which is absurd. It is part of a policy of denial in the interest of national security that began in the administrations of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman, as we know today, and that they were not only did they have knowledge about, they were trying to shoot down out of the sky the disks because they wanted the technology to back engineer. And that is a a huge subject that I've been addressing the last five years with the help of a person who had uh, served inside of New Mexico's state government and gave me a lot of information that came from people at White Sands and the Naval Research Lab. And it was very clear uh, to him and to these people who were trying to let the state rep know, look, this story about UFOs is not confined to 1947 and two or three craft crashing between Roswell and Corona. In fact, that story was never even presented correctly. There were three craft. They were not discs. They were wedge-shaped. One came down at uh, White Sands Trinity site. One came down between Corona and Roswell that everybody's heard about. 
and one came down 30 miles east of Alamogordo on an Indian reservation, the Mescalero Indian Reservation, and all three were described in top-secret classified documents as being shaped like wedges. Think of a pie wedge, not the disc. And that the government knew exactly what had happened between July 2nd and July 6th, 1947. They knew that they were trying to shoot down craft in the skies, and they knew that they were having retaliation. Power grids were coming down. Airplanes were being shot out of the sky. This is a huge unstated, unpublic part of the story, except for a handful of us who have been trying to report the facts uh, for some period of time, myself included. The story, the phenomenon, is highly serious. It is, without doubt, the highest classified uh, area in the United States government, I think in the UK government, and in Russia, uh, and Canada. Uh, And the irony in all this is that the government, using the same kind of psychological operatives that they did in World War II uh, to defeat the Germans, They used the same kind of psychological strategy on the American public and the world public to keep the media away, to keep the citizens away from the hard fact and reality that a select few insiders were dealing with on a daily basis, and that is the interaction of what our own government's documents call, this is their phrase, extraterrestrial biological entities, which gets reduced to the acronym capital E, capital B, capital E, which some government people pronounce EBA or EBENS and others pronounce EBEs. And why there's any difference in pronunciation, I think, is just related to the fact that different regions of the country pronounce words differently. And the fact that the, that our government, in conjunction with our allies from World War II, and then including Russia in all of this over the evolution of time, says that long ago it was decided by some powers that be that it was in the interests of the planet for even enemies to have a level of people with inside what's called uh, a need-to-know, insider knowledge about the presence of something that might be considered a threat to governments that could not control, had no way to stop the interaction of these extraterrestrial biological entities, and that includes the global animal mutilations that have been going on since the beginning of the 20th century. We're in the 21st century. And right now, since 2002, there have been more than 3,000 cases of animal mutilations reported to government authorities in the country of Argentina. Wow. Now, I want to jump in here. I didn't mean to besmirch you by saying paranormal and esoteric. Well, you know, you that- those, words make, they, those words have no meaning. We're dealing with hard physical evidence hard physical reality that this government and other governments have been trying to cope with for more than half a century. Well, I just want to, you know, say that. I didn't mean to besmirch you because it's part of the introduction. Um, well, you should drop those words. They have no re- relationship whatsoever to the hard physical reality of what we're dealing with on this planet. I, I know, but then it would be hard for people to find the show. If I was say, if I said science, I'd be mixed in with all the science. It, you know, it's a niche show. I have to 
uh, get to uh, the, the heart of the matter. I mean, we are a uh, paranormal show, for better or worse, on the nomenclature, I guess you could say. Now, you beat me to the punch here. You already, you already laid out the bio and background. And I was going to mention that, that, you know, you've always been a hard scientist, and that's where your roots were. And you still obviously are doing hard, hard science. Let me look here because you threw me off a little bit. You answered a lot of questions already for me. But let's well, uh, let me just add, since this should be one of the questions that a lot of people ask, what has provoked you to keep trying to swim upstream for 29 years against politically unacceptable subjects that we're, we're talking about? What the government does not want to be politically acceptable for anybody to cover because they know how important it is and they don't want to stand up in front of microphones and address all of the hard questions about who, what, where, what is the source, why are they here, why are they mutilating animals, abducting humans and doing all the things that the non-humans do. What keeps me going? Well, when you, uh, when you start in 79 to 1980 and you do a film, A Strange Harvest, in which law enforcement is telling you, as an investigative reporter and a TV producer, we are dealing with creatures not from this planet that are mutilating animals around the world, how could any reporter worth their salt ever turn away from that story until they had the answer why? Exactly, yeah. Okay, was... then the frustration is that I am talking to you in June of 2008, 29 years after I started the investigation of what is behind the animal mutilations, and I know a lot. I've been exposed to a lot. I've talked with people who are now have passed on, who were in military and intelligence, who have described for me their own face-to-face -face with some of the extraterrestrial biological entities in the process of their work. But even they were never able to answer definitively what are the agendas of the different extraterrestrial biological entities interacting with this planet. Until we know that, I don't know how anybody could turn away from these stories. And after we know that, I would think by then it will be one of the most globally dominant subjects that humans can deal with. We are not alone in this universe. There are many advanced intelligences. Our government has known this for half a century. They have been back engineering technology that they've gotten. They have fed it into the American corporate stream. And we continue to be told that it doesn't exist. I find that repulsive in a government that is supposed to be democratic and representative of the population. Yeah. And, uh, well, you did answer the question here I had for you. How do you avoid the burnout? So we did sort of take care of that. And the question I have here also is uh, you already sort of touched on how when you were in Denver, they were like, you know, we, we can't keep investigating this. Don't do it. And you ended up leaving. Now, you've been doing this for almost 30 years now. Do you ever wish you had, I guess you could say, played ball, if you will, and, and just stuck with the mainstream science type of thing? And, and you, you know, like you said, your, your career was just uh, flourishing. And obviously, you've been fantastically successful since you started covering the paranormal. Forgive me for the word. But do you ever wish, you know, that you had said, oh, forget this paranormal stuff. It's bad news. Because a lot of people say, you know, it hurts their career and stuff like that. What do you think of that? I think the answer to your question is my life would have been so much easier if I had stayed 
doing main what's called mainstream politically acceptable subjects, my life would have been extremely easy. But now you come down to what each human being is made of, I guess. When I realized what a gigantic lie this government was perpetrating on a country that I have loved because it was supposed to be democratic, uh, and realizing as part of the big evolution in this story for me as an investigative reporter and TV producer was the increasing realization that the United States government was propping up an artificial very theatrical presentation to a citizenry while behind the scenes it was operating completely differently. Uh, today in the last seven years we have seen an administration that has been wearing on its sleeve what this government has been doing secretly behind the scenes for 50 years trying to keep the media and the public in the dark about its highest secret of interacting with extraterrestrial biological entities. And when you have governments that have decided that their policy of existence is lies and secrecy to perpetuate national security, I am convinced that that is always self-destructive, and I believe that's what we're seeing finally in this nation that I have loved, this nation in which I worked as uh, somebody who I thought was protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, and I have sat face-to-face -face with a person working for an agency in this government who basically said to me, you are naive if you think that the Constitution means anything anymore. Well, if nothing else, if my life and other lives have made a decision that we were going to at least keep living as if we were still in a democratic republic in which there were constitutional rights until we were completely stopped by being killed for trying to report the truth, this is another big part of this story. And that is something that I, if I said I had lived a very easy and thriving life, reporting only the politically acceptable subjects, mm -hmm. with the knowledge of what I have about a government that has lied for more than a half a century, I don't know how I could have lived with myself. So I think the answer is that I was not constructed in mind, body, and spirit to go forward reporting about the easy subjects when I knew that the hard subject was the fact, was the truth, living in a country in which the government was lying about it. Yeah. Now I want to jump back to uh, 1983 and your interaction with Richard Doty because there's been a lot of talk about that. He sort of kind of burst back into the uh, scene, if you will, in the last couple of years. And, and I'd only heard about your interaction with him because I've only been in the field for like six years. So I'm sort of catching up with everybody else. I guess just talk about that and your reaction when you found out that this guy was, you know, uh, not on the up and up. In uh, 1983, Peter Gersten a well-thought-of uh, attorney in a thriving uh, legal office in New York. Uh, he had been working on getting documents about the UFO phenomenon from the CIA, DIA, NSA, all of the alphabet soup agencies that led to that famous Supreme Court in camera that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Okay, Peter Gersten is who I met with in New York City 
in March of 1983, when I was in New York to sign the contract to produce the hour called UFOs, the ET Factor for Home Box Office. It is Gersten who said, I have correspondence from an Air Force special agent interested in my FOIA uh, application and the work I have done for Citizens Against UFO Secrecy because he has information about an exchange between American military and extraterrestrial craft at Ellsworth Air Force Base in the 70s. He says that he's willing to provide names of eyewitnesses if I, Peter Gersten, the attorney for cause, contact Richard Doty on your behalf, Linda Moulton Howe, now producing for Home Box Office an hour on UFOs, the ET factor, and I can set up a meeting. Gersten sets up a meeting for Howe with this Air Force Office of Special Investigations agent, whose name was Richard Doty. Will you go to that meeting? Will you get the names and the uh, phone numbers and I, Peter Gersten, the attorney, will follow up. I will go to South Dakota. You can follow with your camera crew, and we can do this as a real investigation of a real case for the home box office production. That is the fact of how all that came together. Peter Gersten arranged everything. So on April 9, 1983, I go to Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, on a meeting set up for me by Peter Gerson to go in and get what I think are going to be names and phone numbers. The first thing that Richard Doty said after we went through all these punch locks and double doors and all of the stuff at the AFOSI office at Kerland Air Force Base, he said, you really upset some people in Washington with that documentary you did. Huh. Well. There could only be one, right? A strange yeah. harvest about the animal mutilations. Yeah. So our first discussion was about the project I had done, animal mutilations, the fact that I had, and this was another term he used, you broadsided, I'll never forget that, you broadsided the U.S. government with that film. Well, that led to questions, what do you mean, why, yeah. how, and Instead of giving me a list of names and phone numbers on the Ellsworth, uh, South Dakota project that Gersten has me there for, he reaches into this big desk that he was sitting behind, and, it, and he had told me it was not his office, that it was his boss's office. And, and later on, I learn why we're in that office. I'll tell you in a second. I had sat down in uh, the only chair that made sense to this big, uh, huge desk sitting in this huge office. There was another uh, green, leathery-like chair sitting sort of in the middle of the room. It made no sense to me because it was several feet from this huge desk. And I sat down at the only reasonable size chair near the desk when I had come in to talk with him. And uh, so it's in that configuration that he reaches into the desk, pulls out of a left drawer and says, my superiors, he used that word, my superiors have asked me to show this to you, and he's pulling out a manila envelope from which he takes several pages of white-typed pages. 
And as he's handing it to me, I'm sitting uh, to his right at the corner of this big desk. He said, you may read these pages and you can ask me questions, but you cannot take notes. I'd never had anybody say that to me before. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I want you to move from the chair you're sitting in to that chair in the middle of the room. Well, for Linda Moulton Howe, at that point, I was highly confused. I'm there because I'm a reporter. I'm there because I'm a producer working on an hour special for Home Box Office. Mm -hmm. I'm being told that I can read something I cannot take notes. I'm being told that I must move from the chair that I'm sitting into another chair. To say that I was confused and puzzled is an understatement. But at the time, not knowing that I was moving along on a new path of confronting government intelligence that wanted to block my every move, not knowing that, and wanting to read these pages, I remember standing up while I was reading the top page, which was done very strangely, and actually, when I think back about it, it's theatrical, but it was all caps. Uh, Today, in the world of 2008, you only see all caps uh, in uh, the net, and usually that is to express emotion. Well, it turns out, if you do any history research whatsoever, you will find that government agencies in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, would use all caps uh, frequently for doing title pages. You can you don't take my word for it. You can investigate that yourself. Okay. So this title page said all caps, literally briefing paper for the president of the United States of America on the subject of unidentified aerial vehicles. And I believe it had UAVs as opposed to unidentified flying objects, which are UFOs. And then when I turned the page, it was a normal type, like Elite or Pika, uh, I think double-spaced or quarter-spaced. And the and the paper began with a kind of history about this government interacting with not human creatures, extraterrestrials, those words were used in this paper. And it went into a history. And it included a history of retrievals of the uh, alien craft technology from a variety of locations. And there was a paragraph that I think had nine locations. And they included two completely different time periods in Roswell, one in 47 and another in 49. And Aztec was on that list. And Kingman, Arizona was on that list. And Magdalena was on that list. And a place in the nation of Mexico, south of Laredo, was on that list. And on and on. And that it went into how we retrieved bodies and craft. And the paper said that we retrieved bodies both dead and alive. And then it had a paragraph I will never forget as long as I am breathing. It is embedded in my mind like a photographic memory. It said, 
these extraterrestrials manipulated DNA in already evolving primates on this planet to create Homo sapiens. All questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapiens on this planet have been answered and this project is closed and it was referring to a project also all caps and one of the pages that was called Project Garnet. I remembered it because I was born in January and uh, the birthstone is Garnet and I said to myself while I was reading, remember your birthstone. So Project Garnet, and I'm not saying that there's only one name, I'm not saying that they don't mix and match names and dates in, pa in various briefing papers shown to a variety of people over time in order to muddy the waters. I'm just telling you that's what the paper said that I read with my eyes as a TV producer there representing home box office. Yeah. And it also had a paragraph that said 2,000 years ago, these extraterrestrials created a being to be placed on this planet to teach Homo sapien about love and nonviolence. At which point I looked up at Dodie and I said, we're talking about Jesus Christ here? And he just nodded. Later, much later, I learned that the reason that I was moved to the green leather chair in the middle of that office at the Kirtland Air Force Base Office of Special Investigations was because I was being videotaped and audio taped from my reactions to what I was reading. Hmm, interesting. She's tampering in doubts at it stuff. Yes, yes, she did. Gargoyles, psychics, everything's ungodly. Dark sided. Tarot cards and astrology and witch books and and we had none of that here. Because you know why? Because I'm the warrior. I ask all the questions. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I've been educated while I've been gone. I've been educated on stuff. stuff I didn't even want you to hear, but you need to you know hear. You know why? Because Mama can't protect. They put me on the talk show. I took the ear sets off and said, I am flying home. I don't believe in this. Why don't you ask? Why am I the... I'm always the one that asks all these things. I'm the one that's the warrior. Why can't you be the warrior? Now, based on what we know about Doty now, how much of the stuff do you think that he showed you was on the up and up, or how much do you think it was disinformation? I would say that the vast majority of what was in that paper I have now seen in other documents talked about, as I've told you, I have talked with people who served in military and intelligence directly on missions uh, related to the extraterrestrial biological entity challenge who have told me that, yes, what I've reported is exactly true. So maybe most or all of that paper represented information that had been uh, created by Majestic 12 for presidents. But can Linda Howe prove that the paper, the, the pages that I was presented were absolutely original? No. And uh, as, as time evolved over the past decades, it's my own private conclusion that most of the material in that paper that Doty handed to me represented facts but had been created to present to me and to others as summaries. It was like a summary paper. Yeah. And I know so much more behind each of those paragraphs that I read now. So, and, and, uh, and the Doty character always said to me, because it went on to home box office, and I write about this in an alien Ar harvest, he always said, 
I am only carrying out orders from superiors. Hmm. Interesting. And when, when it all went down that he was, you know, uh, disinforming the UFO world, did you have any contact with him after that where you were like, you know, why did had, you do that or what happened? I had no contact with him after, I think it was the year uh, 83 is when I was contracted by May when uh, the ante had gone up on my being exposed to this briefing paper and Doty saying the government was interested in releasing uh, footage to me about an exchange between non-humans and uh, human military at Holloman Air Force Base on April 25th, 1964. I was allegedly going to get actual footage of real beings, real craft, and this exchange uh, at Holloman Air Force Base. And I was going to be able to tell the truth about the Lonnie Zamora case in which an egg-shaped object uh, was seen by Zamora down in Socorro on, at 6 o'clock in the evening of April 24, 1964. That I'm sure your audience, you and everybody knows about the Lonnie Zamora police officer coming across this egg uh, that takes off, that he saw uh, uh, entities in white suits outside of this egg. Uh, as he pulls up in his police car, the uh, egg thing takes off in a blast of uh, flame. The J. Allen Hynek came out and investigated, said it was truly one of the strongest physical trace cases on record, uh, that there was uh, heat exposure on uh, plants at the site that Lonnie Zamora took him to. There were also uh, three pod marks uh, that were impressed in the soil. All of that has been documented up the kazoo. Mm -hmm. What nobody has ever had was government evidence that this was a communication error, according to Doty and the information I was given, and that, that in the HBO special I was to tell the true story, that our government had crude communications with the extraterrestrial biological entities, and that they were trying to have a meeting at the White Sands Trinity site on the highly classified off of the public radar uh, area in the northern end of White Sands where they wanted these beings to land and we allegedly were to give them back dead bodies and they were to give us technology and uh, that's why they call it an exchange only that the communications of latitude, longitude and time were somehow communicated 12 hours off, affecting the latitude and longitude, so that this craft came down in Socorro instead of the Trinity site, and it came down at 6 p.m. on April 24th instead of 6 a.m. on April 25th, and that the taking off, which is what Lonnie Zamora saw, that the, there had to be more communication, and they'll ultimately that craft did come down at 6 a.m. at the Trinity site, and that that is the famous exchange at Holloman Air Force Base. Holloman is not at that site. Holloman is the Air Force Base down at the southern end of White Sands, but they refer to it as the Holloman Exchange, even though it was at the Trinity site. Okay, all of that was described to me, and I went back 
to a meeting in New York contacting as any professional producer would, and the government would know that. They would know that about my career. They would know that I uh, was a through a thorough professional, contacted Gene Abinader immediately after this meeting, said, this is what I've been exposed to. This is what they say that they're going to deliver. Uh, she said, we have to have a meeting with the uh, executives at home box office. This is uh, a big story. And when I met with executives on, I believe it was May 18th, it's amazing how my mind remembers some of these <laughs> dates, like that they are carved in my very flesh. Uh, May 18th of 1983, I had a meeting in New York with Gene Abinader and with uh, other uh, home box office uh, number two executives. And uh, one of them, a woman, uh, was very afraid of the material. There was no question she was afraid. And her name was Bridget Potter. She was number two to Michael Fuchs. If you go back to 1983, you will confirm that Michael Fuchs was running HBO and that uh, Bridget Potter was a number two in special projects and Gene Abinader was the director of uh, documentaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bridget Potter uh, is the one who said to me, for me to continue to fund your going forward with this production, you will have to bring to me either sign documents by or the very men themselves who are, and this is the list she gave me, the President of the United States, the Vice President, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Wow. So sitting there, knowing that she was making a demand that was impossible, I said, well, what would you like me to do? And then she waved her hand and said, well, proceed, of course. And I said, what do you mean proceed? She said, well, we will not end your contract until October of 1983. If you come up with any of these uh, men that I have listed who would back up this story, then we will proceed with doing the special for Home Box Office. Huh. Well, I continued doing documentaries and independent work uh, during that summer, and by October, I had received other communications from people who allegedly were working for the Defense Intelligence Agency and others, and they said, we would like you to continue working for us on doing a project for television, but we don't want it to be home box office. We want it to be the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Which said to me that the government had CPB wired. Yeah. And none of that ever came to pass either. And I continued uh, on uh, – I did uh, documentaries for UNICEF on child survival that were quite fascinating. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did. I was in uh, Ethiopia for a month uh, producing, and I was in Mexico uh, doing work. I really enjoyed doing those documentaries. And – uh, I decided in the course of the evolution uh, beyond all of that that I would try to keep walking my own independent path as best I could, uh, doing documentaries for companies for uh, on all sorts of subjects, and I would keep doing my own research into the whole wide uh, panorama 
of animal mutilations, human abductions, uh, hard technology, back engineering, all of that, as best I could. And I did the book, An Alien Harvest, in 1989, 10 years after I began A Strange Harvest, because by then I switched that, I knew that this word A Strange Harvest, which I didn't know exactly uh, beyond law enforcement saying it was creatures from outer space, 10 years later when I produced my first book, An Alien Harvest, I knew by then there was no question that extraterrestrial biological entities were interfacing with the planet, with people, with animals, with plants, with water, with the government, with everything. And then life began to just sort of unfold, I guess, supporting my decision that I was going to try to stay as independent for as long as I could investigating what I knew was a gigantic truth that governments were lying about. And here we are in 2008, and earthfiles.com has been alive now for nine years and growing. I started working with Art Bell uh, on Dreamland Online in 1992 and then Coast to Coast AM in, by 1995. Uh, so that was a big radio outlet, which I still do. I uh, do three hours for uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie every month, the last Thursday of every month. I do three hours of news, which can be, it can be a three hours specifically on the environment, or it can be three hours specifically on Mars and, and science, or it can be three hours in what I call real X-Files, which relates to hard physical data and eyewitnesses that I have been able to produce enough about that I think there's substance to report. And then I do uh, Dreamland Radio with that's hosted by Whitley Strieber every week. And I do a lot of other radio, and I have been hired to do reporting for uh, TV productions that end up being distributed on Discovery and Learning Channel and History and so forth. So my life ended up being what I wanted to do anyway, which is to have the freedom to continue to be an investigative reporter and report for television and radio and books and now web uh, and do it on subjects that I felt were important of which the non-human interaction with this planet has never dropped in my mind from first place. Yeah. It is the most difficult subject to report about Credibly, it is the hardest subject to get anybody to speak on the record with their real name, their real title, their real profession. But let me tell you, I know firsthand how many real scientists, government people, military and intelligence know vast amounts about this subject that is still held off limits to not only the American public but to the world by policies of denial in the interests of national security, meaning keep the hamsters in the cage, the taxpaying public, completely dumb and blind, because then it makes your job in the government of secrets and lies so much easier. Yeah. All right. Now let's tackle uh, like a big issue here that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is uh, your take on being a woman in this uh, strange field of, of high strangeness, let's say, and, and dealing with especially the ufology world, which is really male-oriented, male-dominated, and you've come in as an investigative journalist, so you got that sort of outsider thing working against you, which ufology seems to really butt up against. So uh, I guess what's your take on being a woman in this traditionally male-dominated and oriented field? I really have never given that much thought, to tell you the truth. 
I am not a whiner about the fact that I live in a world in which many countries, women are reduced to having to walk in the gutter and the dogs can walk on the sidewalk. I think perhaps I grew up as one of those uh, kids that schools didn't know what to do with because they didn't have any programs for the gifted. So my parents always gave me a kind of you can do and be whatever you want to be philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think that was unusual growing up when I did in school, in grade school, in junior high and high school. So when I went to Stanford University and I was the only female in a class of uh, 27 guys and me, and uh, staying up 24 hours straight or 48 hours straight, uh, to edit, to to we each one of us had to go and raise our own money. We had to uh, get the money for our own projects. Uh, we had to do every single thing on the project, except that you could choose whether you wanted to do camera or audio, and then you could hire one of the other students to do one of those other positions. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always ended up. I loved photography, so I would do camera often and hire one of my fellow male students for audio. But I'm trying to describe that the environment of my life has always been with males because I sought out astronomy, I sought out rocket societies, um, I ended up at Stanford, the only girl in a class of guys. But I'm trying to say that I never gave it, it wasn't me thinking I am the only female in a class or a club or a group, it was these are the only other human beings who are interested in the subjects that I'm interested in. That's the way I always went. Yeah. And now, your question, however, becomes extremely germane. Here I am. I had been put through Stanford on a Stanley Bobert uh, fellowship, which means that I had earned a fellowship that would put me through Stanford University. Uh, I had done well in school, and I have produced all of this stuff. My, I was doing films with the Stanford Medical Center. I was doing uh, a film. My master's thesis was with the uh, Stanford Medical Center on a special a project there. And or, uh, Let's see, Stanford Linear Accelerator was my master's, and Stanford Medical Center was work that I was doing in the two years I was at Stanford. So I had a lot of work to show, and I wanted to go into news. That's what I most wanted to do. And we would get job postings at Stanford, and there was one for a station in San Francisco, and it was for an investigative reporter. And I called up, got my time and date, and took in my portfolio of the work. I was also photographing and writing for the Stanford Chaparral Magazine. I was doing uh, all of this documentary work with uh, the Medical Center and the Linear Accelerator. I had an awful lot of work, and I took all of these things with me for this interview, for this job, to be an investigative reporter. And... The secretary ushers me in to an office in which a man all dressed in black who was the news director 
uh, took one look at me and he said, you must be here for the job in public relations. And I was taken aback, and I said, no, no, no. Uh, I called, I got the appointment for it to apply for the job as the investigative reporter. And without my being able to say another thing, he said, oh, no, no, no. We don't hire women here in this news department because women are always sick. Women cannot uh, hold up with men. And gave me a long laundry list, and I'm sitting there knowing that my entire life was a demonstration of the opposite of everything that he was saying. And when I said, well, I have just been working for two years on a master's degree at Stanford University, and I have uh, many times worked all night, 24 hours and 48 hours without sleep, and I do not get sick, he said, I'm sorry. There, we just do not, we ha and I think he even said, we have a policy against hiring women uh, in news here. If you want to apply for public relations, that's fine, but we're not hiring you for news. We're not hiring any woman for news. And I remember to this day as vividly as if it happened one second ago that I got up thinking not only was this one of the biggest jerks that I'd ever met in my life, yeah. but that by God, that my life and my work was not going to be stopped by such a jerk that I was going to continue to work in news, I was going to do documentaries, and I was going to prove to myself that I didn't fit into any categories that this man had just dished to me. So in a funny, strange way, that complete uh, idiotic point of view Back in 19, I was at Stanford from uh, 1966 to 68 working on my master's degree. So the time frame for that kind of stated public perspective on females in the United States of America was in 1968. Yeah, wow. And we're now at 2008. And in my life and my career, I suppose that some of the energy that has kept me going was that, and then I run into that huge story in 79, which would be 11 years later, in which I know that the government of the United States is lying, 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 and that I couldn't believe it as an American brought up and raised to think that we actually were in a democracy where votes really did count and corporations and government did not combine together in secrecy and lies to run a nation and pretend, let elections be, let's pretend, because they would control what was going to happen anyway. Yeah. That, so I suppose in some ways I have had a career in which I have been trying to show the lies and still survive. Yeah, exactly. Where do you see this UFO phenomenon going in the long run? I mean, are you a big fan of the exopolitics thing? Do you think that's fruitless? Do you think it's going to work out? Or do you think we're going to get disclosure anytime uh, in our lifetimes? Those are all good and excellent questions. I'll take the first one first. It's been my impression of the exopolitical crowd that they are perceiving a kind of if we could embrace uh, the uh, non-humans and have ambassadorships and formalize some sort of political exchange that everything would be hunky-dory. I think that's highly naive. 
when it comes to whether or not any of the non-humans and their agendas are going to be clear to us in this next quarter of a century, it's odd for me to say this, but I still am not sure it will happen even in this next generation. And underscoring that goes back to a discussion that I had with somebody he's no longer alive. It was in the 1980s. He had had uh, a tremendous amount of experience with non-humans uh, in his work for our government. And he said to me, Linda, it's my understanding that MJ-12 set up under the Truman administration took as their large operating box of everything they were doing is that they were going to make this country of the United States go through three generations before anything would be released. Okay, a generation in a sociology book is defined as 25 years. Mm -hmm. So three times 25 is 75 years. Take 1947 and add 75. And you are getting up to around 2012 to 2020 time period, right? Yeah. We are at 2008. If they were going to live up to telling the American public and the world the truth after three generations, it should happen now, right? Everything that I know, that I can tell you knowing fact, but I cannot tell you the details, there are police officers in the United States right now working in a variety of police stations that have been forced by alphabet suits from Washington this year to sign non-disclosure agreements about UFO aerial craft. So you tell me, what has happened to the United States of America when intelligence agencies in Washington can go out to different states and different police stations and order police officers to sign non-disclosure agreements about aerial craft in the sky that they know are extraterrestrial, but to the public they are saying we're alone in the universe and nothing exists. Why would they be making police officers sign non-disclosure agreements yeah. if there wasn't something highly serious going on between our government and whatever is in the skies? And that leads back to Andy Kissner, the state representative from New Mexico, who told me that he learned from people while he was in office he learned from people working at White Sands and the Naval Research Lab that our government has had a secret war with extraterrestrials, mm -hmm. that we have shot down craft in order to get technology and there's been retaliation. Well, if there's been shoot-downs and retaliations since the Truman administration, what in the world do you suppose is happening in 2008? Yeah, it's pretty scary stuff. Well, I don't know if it's scary. This is the whole bottom line of my work and my life. If we would be given the responsibility and the respect as American citizens are supposed to be by a constitution that is supposed to be alive, not dead, if we were given the respect as tax-paying uh, civilians who keep the United States of America going, 
not the other way around, elite groups in Washington and New York and Boston and L.A. and San Francisco with elite uh, insider need to know who assume that they are the only ones with enough intelligence to handle extraterrestrials and keep the world from falling apart. What arrogance if there had been honesty during the FDR and Truman administrations that, yes, the Foo Fighters, yes, the disks are real, yes, we're dealing with interplanetary technology, yes, we're not alone in the universe, yes, there are intelligences that are obviously coming and going on our planet. There is nothing to be afraid of, ladies and gentlemen. There is no physical demonstration that they want to hurt humans. What we need to do is join together as a human family and be able to support each other when we see these disks, when we see these entities, to make these reports. We will all learn about whatever this intelligence is. We will learn together on this planet. We already have lots of religions who accept extraterrestrials as real. That's the Mormon religion. That is the Hindu religion. There are many, many groups of people who accept that we're not alone in the universe, so there's no problem there. We will all learn about this together. We will grow together. Okay, if that had happened during the Franklin Delano Roosevelt to Truman administrations, I think the entire history of this world would have been hugely different, and we may not even have had some of the wars that we've had, and that to me, it is only in knowledge that you have strength. When any elite group of people takes it upon themselves that they are the only ones to have knowledge and that the vast majority must be kept in the dark, that to me is when everything begins to rot underneath and eventually is decayed and destroyed. I worry about that in our country and in the world. We're living in nations that have been constructed on huge lies. I hope, for the sake of the planet and for the human family, that the truth is finally acknowledged by all of the political bodies. And if my work and my life has contributed to keeping doors of actual facts open amid all of the lies, then everything that I have done has been worth it. There you go. Sounds good. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Linda. I really appreciate it. Uh, your insight into the world of the paranormal. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yes, not paranormal. This is the physical, real world we're dealing in. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Uh, your insight into, into this uh, strange world uh, is fascinating, and I feel like we could talk at length for a much longer time. Hopefully we can have you back on the show sometime in the future. Um, and, of course, people can find out more from you at earthfiles.com. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Linda. Well, thank you for being open-minded enough to want to look at truth, and uh, for that, I'm grateful. Thank you. That does it for the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big thanks to Linda Moulton-Howe for coming on the show. You can find out more from Linda at the website, www.earthfiles.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for the final edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback for Season 3. And our letter comes from someone by the name of Craig, and here's what he has to say. Wow, just listen to the entire interview with Bill Burns. All I can say is, what an interview. One of the first podcasts that I will ever, ever listen to twice. 
you were right. Three hours was just not enough time. I think he covered just about everything, including the kitchen sink. Not just big picture, but big picture in HD. He would be a great special event guest. I bet he has forgotten more about the esoteric than any of us can remember. Once again, great show, and you continue to burn the house down with each episode. Signed, Craig. I'm humbled by your high praise for the Bill Burns episode, Craig. You are one of many, many listeners who sent in feedback on the Bill Burns interview. Definitely one of my favorite episodes of the season. BOA's own Joe V called it one of the greatest BOA audio episodes ever, and he's probably our staunchest critic out there. I really enjoyed talking to Bill. Look forward to having him back on the show. Definitely someone who will be back on BOA Audio. Hopefully, I'll be talking to Nancy Burns as well, editor-in-chief of UFO Magazine, someone who I've become good friends with here over the summer so far. So that two-part interview was definitely not the last you heard of the Burnses on BOA Audio. Thanks again, Craig. I hope you enjoy our closing out episodes here of Season 3. And come on back for Season 4 for more underground esoteric audio with our unique BOA Audio style. As I said, that was the final edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. But I always want to hear from you folks. I want to hear what you think of the show. I want to hear your guest suggestions. I want to hear your critiques, provided they're thoughtful. And I want to hear your overall thoughts on how you'd like to see the direction of the program take there's three ways to get a hold of me. You can either go to banallofamerica.com, click the contact button. That's option number one. Option two is simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And option three is the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Great group of folks there talking about the esoteric, talking about the not-so-esoteric, and mostly just chilling in a nice little online community that we like to call the U.S. of E. I want to hear your guest suggestions, folks. I want to hear what you have to say about Season 3 and where you want to see Season 4 go. So just because we're not reading the emails here at the end of the program, because next week's the last episode, doesn't mean you shouldn't write to me, doesn't mean you shouldn't share your thoughts and comments on the program. Send them my way. You heard the three options. And we'll resume, of course, listener feedback in season four so come on back for that up next as always the thanks portion of the show you know them you love them they are the infamous and esteemed boa staff leslie chiron arlie joe v tina senna rochelle hawks and richard thomas from wales these fine folks carry the load at boa more often than not especially during down periods like this when we're a little behind the eight ball and a little late on the audio, they're always meeting deadline and producing some top-notch reading material for Manal of America while I try and scrap myself together and get the audio up and running for you. We've said it every week here at the end of the program, and it's been true every week. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at manalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Make Manal of America part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. This was episode number 30 out of 31 episodes here for the season, as I noted, the penultimate episode. And, of course, it's that time in the show where I ask you to make donations. This program costs money. The bills are paid for by myself with help via donations from great BOA Audio listeners. 
How can you become one of those great VOA audio listeners? That's simple. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the golden PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping VOA audio and Banal of America up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. There's not much of a tease here for next week. I already broke the news at the beginning of the program. As you've heard, I'm sure, next week is the season finale of BOA Audio Season 3, and our guest is the iconic and legendary Mr. Jacques Vallée. Truth be told, I haven't even sat down to edit the interview yet, so I can't tell you exactly much of the details about what we're talking about, but I can say that this interview was six months in the making, the offer to interview Jacques came along last December, but I knew, first and foremost, that you don't just stick Jacques Vallée in the middle of your archive. You want to really make it into an event, and I knew, as soon as I had the opportunity to interview Jacques last December, that he was the BOA Audio Season 3 season finale guest. I can also say that it is perhaps the most rigorously researched episode ever for BOA Audio, and as I noted, it's an ultra-rare two-hour conversation covering Jacques' amazing research, his thoughts on the UFO phenomenon, and the implications of UFOs on society as a whole. Totally mind-blowing, thought-provoking, enlightening stuff with one of the founding fathers of UFO studies. It's total BOA audio style. We're going to ask Jacques the big-picture questions, then we're going to sit back, relax, and get some amazing answers from him on a ton of questions covering a wealth of ground. For this big special BOA Audio season finale, we're going to be busting out the audio previews. We did these last year for season two, kind of dropped them this year for season three. But in honor of the season finale, we will have audio previews for the Jacques Vallée season finale, as well as a little audio recap of season three. I expect those will be released in the not-too-distant future, probably in a couple days at this point, since we're so late with this week's episode. And the season finale will drop next week, either Monday or Tuesday, depending on how smoothly the schedule goes from here. But rest assured, when the interview gets posted, you'll know it. That's next week. The iconic and legendary Jacques Vallée joins us to close the book on season three. As I said, an interview six months in the making, an episode nine months in the making. It's the finale of VOA Audio Season 3 as I sail the good ship VOA off in search of Season 4. Until then, my friends, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.